I was a mum and I had to have my shit together and I had this really toxic mentality still that I couldn't be seen as a failure and in my head if I had postnatal depression and I had to get help for that then I must be a bad mum so I just brushed it under the rug and did nothing about it. I'm Sarah Kearns and welcome to the podcast. This is a safe space to discuss the topics affecting everyday families. Let's take an inside look into our own realities and the realities of others. We'll learn together as knowledge creates empathy. Empathy shapes the way that we act and those actions can change our family and those around us. This is The Conscious Project. What does postnatal depression actually look like? I feel the words get thrown around and those suffering may disclose to their support circles that they've been diagnosed with PND. But do those circles understand what it looks like? What the day-to-day reality of PND looks like? Is it crying all the time? Not being able to get off the couch? How can we support those we love with PND if we don't understand what it actually is? what they actually need from us. Jess, a mum of one who now works in the mental health space, bravely sat down with me and told her story. It's a big one with an inspiring mama at the centre. Content warning. This episode discusses mental health, pregnancy loss and self-harm. For further support, there are resources in the show notes. Hi, Jess. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Sarah, for having me. It's great to be here. I'm so grateful that people like yourselves are willing to have these conversations, uh, particularly now that you work in the mental health field, to be able to be so upfront and honest about your own journey is commendable. And we're just so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I, I really feel that given that I've gone through it and come out the other side or am working to come out the other side, I feel like it's really important to start the conversations and at least get people starting to feel more comfortable about speaking out. Well, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and and how mental health became a journey for you. My mental health journey started when I was quite young. I was bullied a lot through primary school and we ended up moving away for just my parents bought a new property and we moved away when I was in year six to a new town away from all of the friends that I'd made at my previous school and we started farming in the middle of the drought you know we survived for a couple of years on drought care packages and op shop fines and I think that really set me up in high school to be a bit of an outcast because I couldn't go out with my friends. We didn't have the money. We lived so far out of town. And I just sort of, I was automatically distanced because I lived this completely different lifestyle. And 
I missed out on a lot and I feel like that sort of was a bit of a um, prereq for, you know, just not fitting in properly and there was always a trend when I was in high school that there was really needing to be skinny and the skinniest of girls, they were always like, oh, I'm too fat. I'm, you know, my stomach's like flat today. It needs to be inwards, which, you know, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And, you know, I didn't fit in with that either because my release was actually running. And so I'd become quite good at that. And I was training, you know, seven days a week for cross country and track and I did netball. And so I needed to be healthy and strong. And so while they were all avoiding lunchtime, I was making sure that my diet was good and I was eating. And so every aspect of my life just distanced me from my peers. Back to that being different is is feared and targeted. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was really, I think, odd in that community and in that group of young people that I was doing what I was doing and I was okay with it. And mm. it was really hard for them to, I think, understand that I just, I didn't need to be like them to like them. And I went into those, you know, the years of HSC where, you know, you have teachers telling you that you have to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life because you need to get the grades to get into uni and you have to make sure you're choosing the right subjects. And it was quite an anxious time for me. Um, I found myself having a really high expectation on I'd put it on myself to perform in school and if I wasn't the top of the class and I wasn't doing good enough and I had massive anxiety during my exams and I actually I my mum helped me talk to the school and I was able to get special provisions where I sat in a separate room and completed my exam um, just because sitting in an exam room with you know all these other kids used to just send me into a panic attack that actually came the next part in my mental health journey when on my way to an exam one morning but I was actually in a car accident and it was only about five kilometers from home but I had lost control of my car on a gravel road and I was quite severely hurt. My car was destroyed Um, and it completely destroyed my motivation to compete in, you know, athletics anymore. I wasn't able to run for a long period of time. I had to do a lot of rehab to get back to be able to run and it pretty much ended my career in running. And so that sort of started a bit of a downward spiral for me because for the first time in my life, I put on weight really easily because I wasn't active and I didn't need to worry about my diet because I didn't have to train with a certain amount of carbs in my system. And Mm. so I gained a lot of weight. And for me, I gained a lot of weight. It, you know, I sort of went from a size eight to a size 12 but that combined with my lack of fitness and my lack of motivation and the lack of structure was really awful. So at such a young age, you were forced to basically reform your whole identity 
off the back of, you know, some intense bullying and some of those self-doubt and, and not knowing where you fit into life. That That's life-changing for a young woman. Yeah, it had been my life goal for so many years to be this person that was strong and I was running and I'd found something that I was good at and the community that I ran with accepted me and I'd found friends there and people who could see that I was going to be somebody and to lose all of that in an event that was completely out of my control, it really did change my whole life. Hmm. So at what what stage was did you sort of go, I'm it's past the point now where this is just, you know, normal teenage, you know, responses or reactions and think, oh, perhaps there's something a little bit more here that we need to look at. When I started arguing with mum on a regular basis she actually took me off to the doctor and and said look there's something going on here because she is she's not herself she's usually really bubbly happy easy to get along with person and he actually dismissed it and sort of inferred that I was a bit of a hypochondriac at the time but he sent me off to a counsellor and Nadia was the most amazing person I could have spoken to at that time because she helped me work through the strategies with my anxiety and she helped me to accept the fact that, you know, school is such a small time in my life and that, you know, once I'm out of school, I will have the opportunity to recreate my identity as a person away from these people who are telling me all of these horrible things and affecting my self-esteem and she said you know you have I know it's really tough at the moment and you feel like this is what it's going to be like forever but it's only a few years. Yeah and so how old were you when you started seeing Nadia? I started seeing Nadia when I was 15 years old. Okay and did you were you um like reluctant to go and see someone like when mum's turned around and said okay I've booked you this appointment you know being a 15 year old girl were you a bit like "Mm, I'm not gonna go talk to some old woman that has no idea about my life (laughs) yes yes I was very reluctant to go and talk to her but she had such a persona that made Mm. me feel immediately comfortable when I walked into that room and she actually solved quite a lot of problems for me in that first session with her. But yeah, her way of approaching me at that time in my life was absolutely incredible. And as I'm studying myself in the mental health field now, I hope that one day I can actually make others feel that comfortable because if I had have gone to someone who was just reading to me out of what they'd learned from a textbook, I feel like I wouldn't have had the same result. Yeah, and I think that's such a great take-home for parents that are trying to get their little ones help that if it just if the person isn't right, it they just may not open up and it's okay to just keep looking for someone that they really bond with and and not give up even if their child's refusing to to communicate with that person, you know, just to keep fine, to keep trying new people, to keep trying new places. So we move forward a little bit to you meeting your partner. 
Well, I met a partner. I did meet a partner and I was with him for quite a long period of time because I was young and I thought it was love and I had, you know, it was right after I came out of this downward spiral and I was feeling really worthless and a shell of my former self and so I got into this relationship with this young man who looking back I was never enough for I was not enough for his family I was not enough for him I was I was far too country with my boots and my jeans and casual everyday clothes with my hair shoved in a bun to ever fit in but you know he he told me all the things that I wanted to hear at that time in my life and then once I was there and I was involved he destroyed the rest of my self-confidence and I was told quite often through that relationship that I was too fat and I was not fit enough and that I needed to do something about that because you know in order to be enough for him I needed to look right and coming off the back of already having gained weight from not being active anymore it was a really touchy subject for me and it was really triggering and so I had I think I was probably in most people's eyes I was quite healthy and I had lost some weight because I'd started walking again but I developed a lot of disordered eating because if I was working out every day and I was walking and I still wasn't losing weight quick enough then I needed to be doing something else and I lost so much weight that I was actually quite unhealthy and I started realising far too long into the relationship that it didn't matter whether I was skinny, it didn't matter whether I wore the right clothes, I was not the right person for him so I was never going to be enough Um, and I... I let him speak to me with so much disrespect and I was begging him to treat me with basic human decency and accept who I was. Yeah, I think that's such a great point to to point out because when our self-esteem is so low that somebody can come in and take advantage of that and we let them because they are saying what our self-doubt tells us. So we find that women that accept relationships that are toxic and abusive and nasty it's coming from that self-doubt that lives in their little head like if I said to you your hair's purple and you said you would think well, no, it's not. But if I said to you, you're fat and your self-doubt tells you that, then you're going to believe what I say and that's going to affect your mental health so much more than, you know, anything else anyone could have said to you. Yeah, exactly. I think when you've told yourself that story and someone then confirms it for you, it just makes it so much more real. And I feel like, you know, there are so many young women and men in relationships 
like this and they're accepting that because they don't have the self-love and they don't have the self-worth and exactly and we need to build people's self-worth and self-love up and do the work on ourselves before we go into these relationships so that we don't accept a standard that's not good enough absolutely I couldn't agree more so when did you sort of for lack of a better term wake up and go you know what I'm better than this I was sitting in my car late at night because I'd needed to get out of the house and I just I couldn't deal with being in the same room as him and so I had fled to go and buy myself an iced coffee and I was sitting in a car park and this stranger came up to my window and sort of tapped on it and they asked if I was okay and they sat with me and let me bore my eyes out and they just sat with me and gave me the space to just tell them how I was feeling at that point in time and they were so kind and I realized as I was driving home that if a total stranger can notice that I'm not okay and go out of their way to me and hold space for me then why couldn't the person that was supposed to love me do the same wow huge I haven't even got the right word for that (laughs) it was it was pretty big and that was I think the next night I sat down with him and I said I just can't do this anymore I I have been begging you for months to treat me with respect and you can't even do that we need to go our separate Mm. ways yeah and were you living together at this point? We were. We had bought a house. and um, Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, really big call. Very big call. And I do remember my mother telling me that it probably wasn't the best idea. And I was like, no, <laughs> it's, it's going to be fine. Oh, uh, mums. <laughs> she usually does know best. So what did you do after your turning point of the day with the chat in the car and you've gone home and said, yep, I'm out. Obviously, you've got a house together. It's it's a big deal. So what was your next step? I stayed living there because I couldn't find anywhere else to live um, for a couple of months. And during that time, we had the paperwork drawn up for settling the house. And I actually, I moved in with a friend from work who had a spare room and he was a truck driver And so he was never home and he was like, look, it's fine. Just move into the spare room and get yourself sorted. If you find something else after that, you know, that's fine. Anyway, we, um, he actually came with one of his mates and my dad to help me move all of my stuff out. And it wasn't too long into living with him that we realized that we're a lot more than friends and that's the story of of Matt and I we um we worked together at the transport company where he worked um and he was always one of those people who would talk to me about you know how my day was going and you know when you're dealing with truck drivers every day they can be a bit rude and obnoxious when you're telling them where they have to go that night but he was always such a kind person and I always viewed him as a beautiful friend and then when we started living together and you know I I said to him when I first moved in with him that you know I'm gonna need some space because I just 
I need to process all of this. My entire life has fallen apart twice in the space of about five years and I have no idea where I'm going from here. And he would just sit with me and if I was bawling my eyes out on the couch, he was the one who would make sure that I was okay but then put a smile on my face and he would do whatever he could to make sure that I was happy and I fell in love with that because no one other than my parents had ever given me that kind of love. No one had ever made it their priority to make sure that I was smiling and that I could be that happy, bubbly person again. A uh, safe love. A safe love. Yeah, exactly. So things progress and you find out you're pregnant. Correct. Yes. So Amazing. We... um. We actually had a bit of a journey to that pregnancy and um, I found out I was pregnant um, the first time when I actually miscarried a baby at about six weeks and it was such a weird moment for me because I didn't not want to be pregnant, but I didn't know that I was. And it was a real struggle to grieve that when you didn't know that you had anything to grieve until then. Like I had no connection to this baby. I didn't know I was having it. And then to lose it and have it taken away, I was sad, but I felt like I shouldn't have been because I didn't know. Mm, It's very confronting. It is. It is. You know, that sort of gave me a whole different perspective on my journey into motherhood because from that moment on I knew that I desperately wanted to be a mother but it also brought a lot of anxiety and I actually had my fourth laparoscopy for endometriosis about four months after that miscarriage and our specialist told us that it would be really difficult um, to conceive naturally. And so we, we weren't not trying, but we weren't hopeful that anything would happen. So it was just sort of whatever. And when we were ready, we would organize to do IVF. And we ended up falling pregnant naturally, which was amazing. And I was over the moon for about five minutes when I I got that pregnancy test as a positive and then this anxiety set in because pregnancy after any kind of loss and you'll probably relate to this it's like holding your breath for nine months it's just this you know everyone's telling you how lucky you are and how great you look and aren't you so excited? And I was, but I also really, I didn't buy anything for that baby. I didn't want to tell anybody in fear of jinxing it. I think we actually finally told, you know, our extended friends and family when we were about six months pregnant, because I just was so worried that something was going to happen I actually, I found out I was pregnant by going to the doctor with what I thought was kind of, was some kind of stomach bug 
and I was so <laughs> sick. <laughs> I felt awful for about a fortnight and he was like, I think you might be pregnant. And I said, I'm, there's not a lot of chance of that. And it turns out I was, and it set the tone for my entire pregnancy. I was sick 24 mm. seven. Oh no. <laughs> it was awful. I, I don't know when the glowing was meant to kick in, but I certainly lost out on that. And, you know, my back did not want to cope past 20 weeks. I was enormous and you know, Matt's a truck driver. So I was incredibly anxious. So that last month of pregnancy, when you're sort of waiting for when the baby will come, I was terrified that he would be hours away, most likely mm. in another state when I went into labor. And I think the labor of my child was the first thing that had gone right in that pregnancy uh, because Thomas decided he would like to enter the world on a Saturday morning when Matt was oh, home. Very convenient. <laughs> very convenient. It's probably the only time he's ever been cooperative. <laughs> um, so I went into labour on a Saturday morning and um, sort of I laboured at home for the duration of Saturday and by Saturday night I was what they call active labour and so we went into the hospital because I had to be on the antibiotic drip for strep B so they told us we needed to come in and that we would hopefully have a baby by morning and that would have been fantastic but we did not have a baby by morning and nothing had happened um and I remember feeling incredibly just overwhelmed at the hospital because I mean as any mum new mum anyone who goes through this it's it's a really massive thing that you're going through when you are in labor and you're about to give birth and it's the unknown and it's just a really massive time in your life and everyone had told me about like the physical side of it but no one had told me about the mental side of it and how to deal with that you know oh when you're having contractions this is how you get through them so you know you can cope better and you can push more effectively and no one told me how to help with the anxiety that was running through my mind and I feel like I don't know whether my mental state affected my labor and my birth um or whether it was just totally medical but you know, my, my waters weren't breaking, so they, they came at me with that crochet hook to break the mm. waters, which was terrifying in itself. <laughs> um, and 40 hours after I went into labour, we ended up having an emergency C-section. And once he was born, I think I held him for about 30 seconds before my blood pressure started to drop. Um, and I had to hand him over to Matt because I just felt so sick and I was shaking uncontrollably. I didn't get to hold him for about half an hour. Um, and while they were fixing me up and everything, they sort of took him away. But, you know, in that heat of the moment when everyone's got their role to do and you know the the surgeons and the nurses are working on you and the midwives are out there helping Matt you know get the baby wrapped up and everything else there wasn't anyone there with me telling me what was going on and you know it's definitely something that I would consider 
for my next birth is having someone there just for me um, to help me through that because I felt so alone in that moment where I didn't know what was going on or what was happening or where my baby was. Um, And it was just, you know, just a really anxious waiting time before I got to see him again. And, you know, our start to his little life in the fourth trimester was not – it wasn't overly difficult. He was, it was a really great newborn from, you know, all accounts. I've had a few friends that have had babies and, you know, they never slept through the night and neither did Thomas, but he would, you know, we got into a point where he would wake up once a night um, and he was fantastic. But I feel like there's not a lot of support for the mother. You know, there's friends, family, nurses, everyone's asking about how that baby is and how's he going and is he feeding. And um, I think my mum and my dad were probably the only people other than Matt who watched me, you know, every night, um, ask how I was and how I was coping, which I think is there's a massive deficit in our maternity care network for women who perhaps can't afford or don't know that those resources are out there that support the mother. Um, It's a really lonely time when you're in that newborn bubble and everyone, including yourself, focusing on that little person and you sort of put yourself on the back burner and I think that starts to cause a lot of problems. Yeah, definitely that the mother was also born on that day and that transformation she's gone through is so important and it's not honoured. That's right. Yeah, I feel like, you know, we've just done this massive leap into a new life for us and we have all of these hormones and all of this stuff happening within us and the only focus is this little baby that we've had because you know, obviously they're new to the world and they need to be fed and they need to be looked after. But, yeah, I think we sort of overlook the fact that, yes, women are designed to have babies, but it doesn't make it any easier. You obviously began to not cope mentally. And what at what point did it hit that moment where you thought okay or did somebody say to you perhaps look I think that we need to explore PND or if there's something more here that we need to support you I was so naive in becoming a mother that I you know I'd heard the term baby blues talked about loosely and Mm. I just assumed that, you know, when your hormones start changing, you get a little bit teary and it wasn't really until Matt said to me one day, I just feel like you're not coping. And he actually said, I don't feel like you're not coping as well as you should be, which he meant well, but to me I was like, oh, my goodness, he thinks I'm a terrible mum. That's a really hard thing to say to somebody. It is. And, you know, we've had a conversation surrounding that and it was very difficult for him to actually approach me. And he said, you know, I don't think I went about it the right way and I I do wish perhaps I 
could have been a little more gentle. It, it sounds really aggressive, but I just I wanted you to get some help because I could see that what I was doing, you know, I've always been able to to make you laugh and I've always been able to turn any situation around for you and I couldn't do that anymore. And I I needed some backup and so we actually went to my six-week postpartum checkup where they do the little quiz that they talk to you about your mental health and and I came back as really high risk for postnatal depression which I had done throughout my pregnancy as well Um, and they tell you to look for the signs once you've had your baby because you're at high risk of developing postnatal depression. The problem with that is, is that once you give birth, you don't know if it's the baby blues or sleep deprivation or hormones or the multitude of other reasons that mums might have to cry. And when does that actually become postnatal depression? So I, you know, I was stuck in this little bubble where I was like well I've just had a baby like I'm tired my whole life has just changed for the rest of my life I'm I'm a mother and I don't know if I'm sad because I haven't had any sleep for a week I don't know if I'm sad because you know my nipples are cracked and bleeding and he won't latch and breastfeeding is a struggle and he doesn't want to be swaddled which is what everyone told me I should be doing and you know there's all of these challenges and it wasn't until I sat down with the health nurse at that six week checkup where she said you know all of these things on their own every now and then are fine they're normal but when you feel sad all day every day when you start having panic attacks as the sun goes down that's when it's when it's more and you need to get some help so she sent me off to my GP but I I didn't go because I was a mum and I had to have my shit together and I had this really toxic mentality still that I couldn't be seen as a failure. And in my head, if I had postnatal depression and I had to get help for that, then I must be a bad mum. So I just brushed it under the rug and did nothing about it. So what did your day-to-day life look like then living with that PND before you saw your doctor? My day-to-day life was relatively standard for a first time mum I guess I I did solo parent five nights days a week uh, while mm. Matt was away in the truck some weeks he'd leave early on a Sunday morning for Brisbane so we'd actually only have him home for about 24 hours but I found it so hard to get through the day-to-day things you know ha- having a shower brushing my hair doing the laundry you know washing a coffee cup after I'd have a coffee I found myself just completely unmotivated to get anything done whatsoever. And I I felt like I was really lucky because I've heard of a lot of women not having that instant connection with their baby and I absolutely did not have that. I just fell in love with that little boy the moment he was in my arms. 
but I gradually started to feel a disconnect from him. Um, I sort of went in reverse and I would wish for him to just be asleep so I could, you know, have a rest, even though in those really early days, he was pretty happy to just hang out on the floor and look at a little book or something. He was its quite a really easy baby. And that's why I really struggled with the idea of having postnatal depression because he was not a difficult baby to have. He was, he was really chilled out. Um, and, you know, every day when the sun went down, I would just feel this massive overwhelming anxiety and I would spend the first couple of hours of the night crying on the lounge and just, you know, staring at him either asleep or awake and not knowing what I'd got myself into and not knowing whether or not I could keep going. And I think I knew then that it wasn't right. But, you know, I kept thinking that this is what happens when you adjust to your new life as a mother. We spoke about before how when someone says something to you that just cements that story it just makes it very real for you and I was actually told by someone that I thought I was really close to um that I was neglecting him because he kept crying and that if I was a better parent I would be able to know what the problem was and fix it um and I feel like that is such a cruel thing to say to a mother especially a new one especially one that's going through postnatal depression when they're already having those thoughts to cement that for someone is just it made me feel like everything I was feeling was true and they actually followed that up with that if I raised him I'd ruin him and that means that that, that self-worth, that story was still so, you know, important in your mind that when somebody else said it to you, it just cemented that for you and you just, that just takes so much work to undo again. And, and the only way you can do that is by building yourself up. So what was the turning point? I remember driving to pick Thomas up from daycare one day and his daycare is on the other side of a railway line. And I remember just thinking about how much of a relief it would be if a train hit me. By this point, I'd already sort of made up a bit more of that story that my son and my partner would be better off without me, that if I was gone, I couldn't do any more damage or pass on my trauma, which of course is absolutely not true. And it you know, it would have only created more trauma for them. But when you're in that state of mind, you don't really see any of the light or the truth. You've just got this other other truth made up in your head. And I remember one night Thomas had been, he wouldn't go to sleep. I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I put him down in his cot and my mind was just racing with all of these crazy thoughts. And then I just his little face popped up in my mind and I realised that the thought of not watching him grow up and potentially being the reason that he didn't smile, his beautiful cheeky little smile broke my heart and I couldn't do that to him because I needed to protect him and 
in that moment, I needed to protect him from myself. All of a sudden, it was so clear to me that I had to fight and I had to get better and I had to do whatever I could to do that. So I actually, I went outside and I rang Lifeline and it was the first time I had been open and honest about what was going on since I gave birth. Mm. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I felt like a massive weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I just felt this massive sense of relief that I had envisioned would come from you know taking all the pain away but it was actually just getting it off my chest and being able to talk to someone. I find sometimes our self-talk when it's internalized and we're not speaking the words sounds so much more real and true than if we actually say what we're thinking. It's so much easier when you say it out loud to realize that what you tell yourself is awful and horrific and you wouldn't say that to anybody else yet we're internally saying it to ourselves but once you give it a voice and put it out there in the earth I think it's easier to identify that hey this isn't okay and I shouldn't be speaking to myself like this this isn't this is not a well person yeah exactly I I actually the lady that I spoke to at Lifeline put it in the most beautiful way she said you need to talk to yourself like you would talk to your best friend who's just had a baby you know you need to give her that support and that love and encourage her and you don't talk down to her because that would break her heart and that would be cruel so you can't do that to yourself because you need to be that best friend and you need to talk to yourself like you are that person and that was so true it was really powerful for me because you know I one of my best friends did have a baby three months before I did and she's an incredible mother and I can't imagine ever telling her any of the things I told myself and it was a bit of a a big realization for me the shame of even saying out loud the things you're saying to yourself internally is very confronting yeah, absolutely. You know, when you actually do voice the things that have been going through your mind and, you know, the first time I told someone that, you know, I, I thought my son would be better off without me, they asked me why and I didn't really know. I, don't, I didn't know why I thought that. It's just something that I told myself. Looking back, there is no benefit to him not having me in his life. Yeah. So what what would you say for those listening that perhaps are concerned about a, their partners or a friend or anyone that may be suffering with PND, what would you tell them to look for? Well, a mother with postnatal depression can quite often look like any other mother and I don't think I really varied from anyone else. You know, I think the biggest warning signs are, you know, you – reserve yourself and you sort of take a step back from life and isolate yourself away but it's very difficult to pick that up if you're on the outside looking in because they're a new mother and they're wrapped up in their little newborn bubble so of course they're isolated because all of a sudden they have this little human that you know they're cluster feeding or they're yeah, sleeping all the, the perfect time. storm it is yeah it's um you know, one of the symptoms is also exactly what any other new mother is probably doing. I think the biggest sign for Matt was 
that my personality had slipped away. And I think that's a really big thing in motherhood is that your lifestyle might change because all of a sudden you have this little person that's with you all the time and, you know, you might have hormones and things that are affecting your moods, but your personality should still be there. And yeah, that was the biggest thing that Matt noticed was that my personality was gone and I wasn't laughing and I wasn't smiling and I, you know, I didn't want to go out and go for a walk and, and things like that, even when it was totally possible. And when he'd give me the opportunity to sit down and read a book, I'd just sit on the couch and cry. So I think, you know, look for those changes in personality and when you see, you know, if your friend is someone who is always laughing and happy and and all of a sudden they're finding it really hard to smile, just check in on them and, and see how they're going. And, you know, I think approaching it as, you know, I just wanted to check in on you because everyone comes and, and visits and they want to hold the baby and they want to ask how the baby's going and, you know, but no one holds the mother. No one wants to look after her because, you know, she's not the new thing in this world, which is actually untrue because, again, like you said before, she's just been birthed as well. She was, she was a woman before, but now she's a mother and it's all new to her and she is this new person. And I feel like that's really important is that women – a lot of women don't feel like they get the support they need from their community after they give birth because it's just this society has told us that we give birth and we hide our bodies and we get on with life because now we have a person to look after. But mothers need taking care of too. Definitely. And if someone's listening out there that really identifies with some of the thoughts that you've shared or the feelings that you shared, what would be some quick, simple steps for them? What what do they do next? I think if you are experiencing, you know, any of those symptoms, or even if you're just not feeling yourself, like I I remember when I, I first started getting symptoms, I just had this feeling in the pit of my stomach that just something wasn't quite right, just a gut feeling. And I honestly believe if I had have just gone to see my doctor or spoken to someone at that moment, it could have changed the whole journey of, you know, the first 12 months of my son's life and for me as a mother. And, you know, if you even suspect that you know the baby blues in that first week of after giving birth are just going on a little bit too long or you know the first day that they come and they make you feel really uncomfortable go and speak to someone about it because you know worst case scenario is they're going to tell you that it is just hormones, but they've given you the resources that you need. Mm, you wake up feeling better tomorrow. You wake up feeling better tomorrow. And if it's something more than that, then you can get the help that you need as soon as you need it rather than leaving it for too long because my biggest regret is that I didn't get help sooner. And, you know, I sort of I see it as a bit of a positive now that I'm out the other side because it gives me an awful lot of experience and, um 
yeah, an awful lot of experience to be able to help others that are perhaps there or going through it. But for my own mental health in the thick of it, it would have been a lot better if I had have reached out sooner. Mm, I think that's something that we do as mothers so often that, you know, the first symptom of our child being unwell, we rush to the doctors and demand that they tell us what's going on. We want action. We want tests. We want, we want to know what's going on where with ourselves, we just muffle it and we muffle it and we just band-aid and band-aid and band-aid until finally it explodes and we end up so unwell. And you think if I had have shown myself the same love and care and respect that I show my child and be proactive in my own health, then perhaps it wouldn't have gotten so bad and, you know, that we are just as important as that little person that we're looking after and that, you know, that old saying that if mum isn't well, nobody's well, you know, it's you're the heart of the family and, you know, or, you know the primary caregiver, not just mum, but that primary caregiver they just need to be well for the whole family to benefit. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the fact that so much pressure is put on us by ourselves to, you know, keep this household together and running. And, you know, I take my hat off to the women who do it solely on their own because, you know, I do at least have a partner that comes home a couple of nights a week and is here. Mm. But, you know, there is, there's so much pressure on myself to make sure that everything is done. And I think as mums, we really need to take a step back and go, you know what, those dishes can wait until tomorrow. I need to sit down and have a cup of tea or I need to go to bed earlier. You know, it's a big one, I think. Absolutely. You know, and I, I get it. I really do. I spend um, you know, Mondays are my day at home with Thomas where we just spend some time together and by the end of the day, because he, you know, is not down for napping, he's not not okay with that, <laughs> um, you know, by the end of the day I just want to have some time to myself but then Exhausted. I start my working week absolutely buggered because I haven't gone mm. to bed early enough and that in itself, you know, life is so much easier to deal with when you're well slept and the more opportunities you get, it's not always possible, but every chance you get to, to get a little bit more rest is 100% worth it. And nourished and eat well and, you know, exactly. give your body the fuel that it actually needs. So often we end up just eating scraps or not actually looking after our own needs and then you're just asking our, our body to run on nothing or, you know, on bad fuel. It just it doesn't work to its best ability no absolutely you know I I've spent I've actually just turned that corner myself you know I would spend the afternoon getting you know Matt's dinner ready for when he got home out of the truck because he only had sort of half an hour to have tea have a shower and he would eat at the same time that Thomas would and so they'd both have you know steak and three veggies or you know something nourishing for them and then by the time I'd finished running around like a headless chook, I'd have a piece of toast and wonder why on earth my body wasn't functioning the way it should. And, yeah, it's it's massive. Get, get the rest, eat well, and drink lots of water because regardless of whether or not you're breastfeeding, your body needs water to function and it makes a difference. Yeah. And just finally, what do you want others who have never lived through PND to understand? I think the biggest thing to understand is that 
PND is is not too far different to any other form of depression or mental health disorder and you know, in in the real core concept of it we withdraw ourselves a lot from what's going on mm. and you know checking in on us means more than you will ever know and I've had some beautiful friends and family who have constantly checked on me and I've been so grateful that they have been understanding of the fact that I'm not going to reply every time because sometimes I just I can't Mm. and I don't want to but I got their message and I appreciate that and I you know that knowing I have their support and that they're checking in does keep me going but sometimes I just I don't want to talk to anybody and you know I think that's where some people they check in and then they don't get a response so they don't check in again because they're like oh well they don't want me to we do we absolutely do we appreciate it and we know that you're supporting us and that means so much in that really non-confrontational way where it's just a text or something that you can just sit with it you don't you're not forced on the spot absolutely yeah you know I I have a beautiful friend who lives in Broken Hill um and she is constantly, she'll just send me a little Instagram message or a text and just say, hey, I'm just checking in to see how your day's going. I'm here if you need to talk. And, you know, nine times out of ten I'll chuck her back a message and say, look, I." and actually this is another thing is, you know, for women who are experiencing postnatal depression or even just having a bad day be honest about it you know we have this Mm. really generic response hey how are you I'm good how are you and I feel like we're just lying to ourselves sometimes because not every day is good and you know if you are feeling like you are having a bad day let them let someone know because one it will make you feel so much better um just to be able to you know you don't have to keep playing this role that you're okay and you're great you can be vulnerable and you can say today I'm just having a really bad day I'm really tired um you know my mental health isn't fantastic and that might be all you need to do um and they might be able to support you or they might be able to give you a resource that can help but I think just leaving the motherhood part of life completely judgment-free whether you have postnatal depression whether you have children whether you are um you know tried and tested mum and your kids are grown up motherhood is not a place for judgment and that is where so many of the issues for me started to come in is that I was feeling constantly judged by strangers by family by friends by my partner even though they weren't necessarily doing it but we we judge ourselves so much that we see judgment from everywhere else. And when someone actually makes a point to comment on something and make a judgment to you, it really affects a mother's mental health and her self-esteem. And I feel like, you know, there's just absolutely no need for it. If it's if they haven't asked for your advice and it's not constructive or encouraging, it doesn't need to be said. Mm, absolutely. I love that. It's a great place to end. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Jess. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's been amazing.
Thanks for tuning in today. I would love to continue the conversation with you over on Instagram at the Conscious Project Podcast. Hit subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And I would be so grateful if you would take a moment to leave me a five-star review. It really does help. Take care.